Hello and welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, presented by Tampa Suites, Waco Northeast. This episode is episode nine of our Nine for Title IX series, featuring former University of Texas Women's Athletic Director and 2010 Texas Sports Hall of Fame inductee, Donna Lopiano. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, presented by Play Suites, Waco Northeast. In this episode, we conclude our Nine for Title IX series with Dr. Donna Lopiano, a woman who has helped create immeasurable gains for women through Title IX. Dr. Lopiano is best known as the Women's Athletic Director at the University of Texas for nearly two decades, starting in 1975. She served as Women's Athletic Director until 1992, when she became the CEO of the Women's Sports Foundation. She later founded Sports Management Resources. Additionally, she was president of the AIAW, the National Governing Body for Women's Athletics, before the NCAA took over. Donna Lopiano, however, is much more than simply titles such as president, athletic director, and founder. She actively engaged and continues to advocate for more opportunities for women on and off the playing field. When the University of Texas hired its first ever women's athletic director, the school could not have made a better choice than Dr. Lopiano. She not only designed the university's new women's athletic department, she built it into a model for championships and life and career preparation that is used as a template throughout the United States. Moreover, she testified before congressional committees multiple times and is regarded as one of the leading experts in Title IX compliance in the country. Turns out she was a pretty good athlete as well, as Nell Fortner gave us a first-hand account of in Episode 8 of our Nine for Title IX series. Dr. Lopiano grew up playing sports in her hometown of Stamford, Connecticut. She dreamed of playing Major League Baseball and was an outstanding pitcher as a youngster. She was also committed to the craft. She threw 500 pitches a day. She thoroughly impressed the coaches at the local Little League tryouts and was the first player selected in the league's draft. Despite her love of the game and her ability to play better than many of her peers, when she went to pick up her Little League uniform, an adult cruelly pointed out that the rulebook stated that girls were not allowed to play in their local Little League. The future architect of a major Division I athletic program and a future inductee of several sports halls of fame, including the Texas Sports Hall of Fame, was banned from baseball at age 11 simply because she was a girl. This was the heartbreaking reality of the pre-Title IX world for many athletically gifted girls throughout the country in many different sports. Dr. Lopiano's father had an old army buddy who was a scout for the Pittsburgh Pirates. That friendship eventually got her a tryout with a well-established softball team called the Raybestos Breakettes when she was in her mid-teens. 
Soon she was playing softball all over the world with the team. Dr. Lopiano, thanks so much for being part of our Nine for Title IX series. Would you please talk about the Breakhead softball team that you started playing on as a teenager? That was open amateur softball, so non-school softball. You would know it as a travel team today. It was a, um, a softball team sponsored by a corporation. In fact, most women's softball teams in that day were corporately sponsored. You know, the companies had teams for their employees. And I played for 10 years. Did you play any sports for your high school? I played high school sports, but not softball, because you, had to, you could not play in an outside team when you played a preschool team. My outside team played 100 games a year, where my school team played 10, yeah. <laughs> so, no choice there. Right, exactly. And, and one of your teammates was Joan Joyce. Who, Correct. And she, in an exhibition, she apparently struck out Ted Williams. Were you in games against major leaguers as well? The way that happened, every year our women's softball team, we were a national championship women's softball team, and we played in the Jimmy Fund Benefit in Boston as an exhibition game against the Red Sox. And um, what, what are your memories of, of playing in that? Great. They would have celebrity pitchers like Jerry Lewis, you know, the comedian, and you know, it was just a great experience. It was great fun, you know, it was to raise money for the Jimmy Fund. You first went to college at Southern Connecticut. What led to your decision to go there? Many of my teammates went to Southern. I wanted to stay pretty close to Stratford because I played while I went to school. I played ball in Stratford. I went to school in New Haven, so those are pretty close. They're within 20 minutes of each other. So, uh, and it was a uh, probably the best physical education major school in the state. You were still playing softball then. You also played uh, field hockey, volleyball, and, and basketball. That's right. What are your favorite memories from one of those sports? Well, not only did I play field hockey, basketball, and, and volleyball, I actually played for my institution, but I also played on outside teams in volleyball and basketball that were with the same players that I played softball with. So we would finish our softball season. We'd immediately go and become a USVBA, United States Volleyball Association, volleyball team, like travel team in volleyball. And when the basketball season came, we would play basketball. So we were all multi-sport athletes, and we stayed together and played as a team together all year, but not the same sport. And I bet you guys became really, really uh, a core group then, close friends, I would think. Oh, absolutely. But at the time, you know, the 1950s and the 1960s, there were very special places in the United States. One of them was in Texas, for instance. Um, Wayland Baptist College had the Wayland Flying Queens. You know, they were the centerpiece sport team in that city, and they were nationally prominent. There were the Raybestos Breakheads on which I played softball. That team was like that in Connecticut. They were nationally prominent. There was a team, the Orange Lionettes in California, same thing. They were usually located in spots where there was no well-known men's team or professional sport uh, franchise near that location. 
you know, one of the reasons, for instance, that Texas Longhorns are so prominent is there's nobody close to them in terms of pro sports, right? So if you want to go see good sports, you go to the University of Texas games. Well, that happened to women's sports, too, but they were in different locations in the country. In Stratford, there would be two or 3,000 people that came to every one of our games. Oh, wow. So you guys were, were quite popular. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Covered by the newspapers. Like I said, there are these small hotbeds of interest and uh, excellence in women's sports. And they were usually in the smaller towns without uh, men's sports competition. And they were idiosyncratic, you know, that they even occurred. They usually occurred because there was a, for instance, the case of Ray Bestis, the uh, president of the corporation, loved softball. And he started a men's and a women's softball team. So it took some pretty well-to-do or male-in-a-leadership position to even give that opportunity to women. There was some guy somewhere with money who really loved women's softball and wanted to do something with it. And um, eventually you moved cross-country to go to uh, USC. What, what led to that, and what major did you get your doctorate in? At the time, it was physical education and, and athletic administration. We call it sports management nowadays. <laughs> but this was a long time ago. How did you get your job at Brooklyn College? I applied for it after I got my um, PhD. My parents supported my education. I uh, felt like I should go back east to work to be close to my family. And I applied to about you know, 50 different colleges and universities. You know how it is when you go hunting for jobs, and ended up at Brooklyn College, where I spent four or five years there as assistant athletic director. And it was from there that I applied for the position at the University of Texas at Austin. That's kind of leading into what I wanted to, to get to next. But, but first, how, how did you first hear about Title IX? Well, that was pre-Texas. Title IX in 1972 was unheard of in terms of its relationship to sports. When the law passed, it was intended to open up the doors to graduate schools, professional graduate schools for women that at the time had quotas on the number of admissions. So if you wanted to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, you wouldn't get admitted. There'd be very few women admitted because they believed that women were gonna have kids and then drop out of the labor force and it would be a waste of education. So that was the basic reason behind Title IX. In 1974, the NCAA's legal counsel in Washington, D.C. asked the question whether Title IX applied to extracurricular activities. And when the answer turned out to be yes, all hell broke loose, Daryl Royal, then, you know, head coach of the University of Texas and president of the American Coaches Association was quoted nationwide saying that Title IX and women's sports would be the death of big-time football. And it was Daryl Royal, J. Niels Thompson, who was the faculty athletic, NCAA faculty athletic representative at Texas, and who also happened to be the president of the NCAA, who convinced then-Senator John Tower to try to amend Title IX to exclude football and men's basketball. There were four attempts to do that prior to 1975. All four of them failed. You mentioned that you applied for the UT position. How did you find out about it, and what was the hiring process like? 
believe I was recommended by Carol Oglesby, who was then president of the AIAW, the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. I had known Carol from my softball days. She played for another woman's softball team, the Orange Lionettes. And, you know, we played against each other, so we knew each other. And I got involved in AIW when I went up to her and said, oh, let me help, you know, you have a committee you want me to take care of or whatever. So she knew of my work and she recommended me to the University of Texas. I um, went down there and did a, was on a faculty panel. I interviewed with um, the faculty search committee. I interviewed with Daryl Royal. He was part of the people we were meeting. <laughs> First time I met Daryl, we were he was just, you know, trying to make small talk. And he said, hey, do you like country western music? And I was from New York. I said, no, I hate it. <laughs> not not knowing, you know, his relationship with Willie Nelson. You know. um, so, but you, you, you got hired. And one thing that, that is really interesting is you were still pretty young at the time, correct? Yeah, I was like 29. Yeah, and so what, I mean, it's completely uncharted waters going in. You're going into a huge university. You're establishing a women's athletic program. What were some of your first objectives? It didn't seem at the time that it was hard to me. I believe that's probably true of most 29-year-olds who are naive, right? I thought they were hiring me to have the best women's athletic program in the country. <laughs> so my goals were that we would have every one of our sports in the top 10, that we would have at least a 90% graduation rate, and that we would have an average GPA of 3.0 or better, and that all of our kids would know how to handle themselves in terms of speaking to the public or to media. And those were the four things that we just said, this is what we're gonna do. What were the first sports you chose, and why did you choose those specifically? I kept the sports that had already been established initially, and when I interviewed all the coaches, the one question I asked everybody was, if I you know, gave you $10,000 more in your budget, what would you use it for? And I let a coach go if they told me uniforms. The right answer was scholarships. <laughs> so I was looking for coaches who you know, were trying to upgrade their programs. Uh, I eventually dropped women's gymnastics at the time because we had lost a, a great many schools playing gymnastics due to insurance costs. And I only had so much money and wanted to really establish the sports we had as opposed to have them be jacks of all trades, master of none. So I didn't add any sports, but I, I dropped one in the first two or three years of the program. One of your first hires, you talked about hiring, was Coach Conrad. Um, right. How did you find her? And were there other candidates? It seems so obvious so, now. You know, men do this all the time. They steal coaches away from other teams, right? They find out who's the best coach, and then they go out and hire them. They don't wait for the paper hire. So I called everybody I knew in Texas. I knew we had to recruit Texas. And I asked who was the best women's basketball coach in Texas. The two names I got were Jody Conrad and Sue Gunter. Gunter was at uh, Stephen F. Austin at the time. Um, and I went up to Arlington where 
Jody was and watched her practice and watched some of her games and you know, same thing with Gunner and I was impressed and that's how Jody Conrad got to Texas. I had to uh, hire her as both the volleyball coach and the basketball coach to justify her salary at the time. But we soon made her just a basketball coach after a while. It was not unusual for women to coach multiple sports at that time. And in the previous episode of our Nine for Title IX series, Nell Fortner shared her experience playing both basketball and volleyball at Texas with Jody Conrad as her coach in both sports. We also spoke with Coach Conrad in episode 19 of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast as she shared about her life and career. Dr. Lopiano, one of the things she mentioned was that you were greatly involved with the AIAW, the governing body that sanctioned women's sports before the NCAA. We've also discussed the AIAW quite a bit throughout our Nine for Title IX series. Would you please talk about the AIAW's importance and how you got involved? Pretty early on, I became uh, a member of the executive committee, which is like a board of directors of AIW. And I was an officer. I was director of national championships. And then I was president. It was like any other governance organization where you would get elected to these positions. And they were not jobs. They were what you did on top of your own job. And the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics was established in 7273, I believe, to be the equivalent of the NCA for women. Previously, there was an organization called CIAW, which was under the aegis of the Professional Physical Education Association at the time called the Division for Girls and Women in Sports of the parent organization, which was the Association uh, for health, physical education, recreation, and dance. So there was a realization after several years of women's championships under CAW that they needed to have an organization where there were institutional members and institutional representation as opposed to being run by a professional women's physical education organization. So AIW was formed out of CIAW. Pretty much the same people stayed in play because usually who is in charge of women's athletics on college campuses was whoever was in charge of physical education. So you know, it was a different name, a different membership composition structure, but the people were the same. The AIAW governed women's athletics into the early 1980s, and you were its president. In the early 1980s, There was actually a year that both the AIAW and the NCAA hosted separate national championships. Would you please give some history on that? After the NCAA voted to offer women's championships, the AIW sued on an antitrust basis. And it took almost a year for that court case to make it through the courts. So the last championship was in 81-82 for AIW. It was the first championship for the NCAA. When AIW lost its lawsuit, 
the organization decided to disband. When we return, Dr. Lopiano will share her memories of how the University of Texas Women's Athletic Department was built, how UT's women's soccer, rowing, and softball started in the 1990s, and the important role Title IX continues to play in both women's athletics and beyond the game. In our Nine for Title IX series on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, presented by Town Play Suites, Waco Northeast. Hi, this is Hall of Famer Nancy Lieberman, and I listen to the Texas Hall of Fame podcast. And if you're not listening to it, you're missing out. When you come to Waco, be sure to stay at the Tam Place Suites Waco Northeast, located just a short distance from the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. You'll start your day off with a delicious complimentary breakfast, and you'll also enjoy the Town Place Suites free Wi-Fi, fitness center, and pool. Next time you come to Waco, make the Town Place Suites Waco Northeast your home base on the road. Welcome back to our Nine for Title IX series featuring Dr. Donna Lopiano on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, presented by Town Play Suites, Waco Northeast. Remember to follow the Texas Sports Hall of Fame on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram to stay up to date on all of the great things happening at the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. Dr. Lopiano, when you started at the University of Texas, the annual budget for the entire women's athletic department was somewhere between $70,000 and $90,000 at the time. By the time you left, you grew that budget to around $4 million. What do you think led to that growth, and how did you go about it? Well, when the program started, there was, you know, there really wasn't really an athletic program from the standpoint of, you know, we had all of our coaches in that first year that I was there uh, were paid $1,500 each as part-time salaries. They were all full-time physical education teachers. There was only a total of $10,000 in scholarships. 20000 was my salary, and we only had two other employees. One was an academic advisor, and one was a secretary. So, you know, in for all intent and purposes, it was not even out of the club sports stage. Um, in that first year, we had to start lining up, you know, financial resources. Where was the money going to come from to fund women's athletics? And the primary sources were, at the time, there was a student fee, a mandatory athletics fee that got into the men's games. Uh, they doubled that to give women some income. And at various points in time over you know, the initial you know, six or seven years, we got funding sources like all of the vending machine money from Coca-Cola on campus, the money from uh, the university leasing its land for the municipal golf course in Austin. There were innovative ways to find money 
taxing men's athletics, saying to men's athletics, you have to give this kind of money to women's athletics. So we had to develop that. And at the same time, we were developing our own revenue base in terms of asking for donations. Basketball program was very successful under Jody. We had, at some point, we had seven or 8,000 season tickets to basketball, second only to University of Arkansas among men's and women's programs. And um, Coach Conrad mentioned that the 1985 Final Four was kind of a, in her opinion, a, a benchmark for women's athletics with everybody coming and seeing what was happening at Texas. How did getting the Final Four there come about, and what was your experience with that Final Four? The advantage of the University of Texas is we were one of only nine programs in the country, nine schools that had a separate women's athletic department administered separately from men's sports. Daryl Royal didn't want to have anything to do with supporting women's athletics or administering it. He was too busy being that football coach and, and an AD. He said, no way, I can do this too. He said, just have them develop separately. So we had separate departments, and that was a fortunate accident of history. It enabled us to concentrate on developing women's sports and never coming second to football or coming second to men's basketball or any other sport for men. For that reason, and because women's sports were new and they're hungry to develop and take advantage of this new opportunity, you know, you had a whole athletic department that was just centered on selling women's sports to the community. And we had to step up in that we had a separate athletic department and we could do that. We could say we are going to do something that's never been done before. So the first thing we did was develop women's basketball because it was so popular in Texas. And we developed the Fast Break Club and we had guest coaches and it was that model that everybody started to, to copy that this is how you start to build a booster club for a women's sport. This is how you have to play basketball separate from men's athletics. You have to market it separately from men's athletics. You can't be the preliminary game. We were able to do all those things because nobody told us we couldn't. And so, you know, in 85, the whole idea of selling out Irwin Center, you know, was the fruition of that. People were pretty startled in that that hadn't been done before uh, on such a scale. We were an accident of history, but the product of that uh, accident, separate departments for women and having everybody work in the same direction to develop women's sports, never taking anybody's attention away from women's sports was key. The other thing we did was we, I believe we assembled the best coaches in the nation, and we did get all of our sports in the nation's top 10 and won the Sears Cup every year. And People looked at what Texas was doing and tried to emulate Texas. Now, there was a lawsuit that I read about. I'm not sure if you were still the athletic director, but the lawsuit that started the rowing and soccer and, and right. softball teams. Right. Could you talk a little bit about, about that? Every year, I would go to the institution and say, we need more resources. It's not enough to take a small number of sports and treat them as well as men. You have to have a, a larger number of women. You've got to add sports because Title IX says that participation in women's sports should match their proportion in the undergraduate student body, and we weren't close to that. So I would, you know, I couldn't go out and hustle lawsuits. 
but um, I keep a box under my desk, and I had the Title IX Investigator's Manual, and then I had the business cards of local attorneys. And whenever a parent would come in and say, why don't you start a, a soccer team or rowing or whatever, I would give them the Title IX Investigator's Manual. I'd give them the card to call an attorney. I would tell them that we are not currently in compliance with Title IX, but I've tried to do something I can't. Maybe you can. <laughs> and, you know, somebody did it. So, <laughs> uh, so it was good. Cultural change happens usually because of two reasons, either bad press or lawsuits. Wow. So this, this one was lawsuits. Which, which can be bad press. <laughs> well, that's, it's a combination of both. Yeah. And to another accident of history is that, you know, at the time, the governor of Texas was Ann Richards, who is an ardent fan of women's athletics. She had appointed a local attorney named Martha Smiley to the Board of Regents of the University of Texas. And she pretty much said to Martha Smiley, I don't want this to go to court. You better settle. So... Texas didn't have to weather bad press. You know, it settled and started women's teams and, you know, got applauded for it. You know, it's important to have the right people in the right places, or it could have been the opposite of that. You know, Texas could have said, over my dead body, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's almost like things lined up. They were kind of meant to be in some way. Well, Austin was a very special place. Think about it. You had Ann Richards. Governor of Texas. You had such personalities in Texas, like uh, Barbara Jordan, you know, who was famous for the, the Nixon hearings, and probably would have been the first black woman candidate had she not had MS, but she was a centerpiece in Austin. You had Molly Ivins, you know, the, you know, the hilarious journalist. Austin was an oasis for uh, women and at the time, had the largest percentage of female attorneys per capita in the U.S. So, you know, when you talk about hotbeds or accidents of history, you know, there are a lot of factors that just gelled in Austin. Wow, yeah, that is a story behind the story right there. Now, um, we're asking everyone to fill in the blank, if not for Title IX. If not for Title IX, we would not have the, the numbers of female executives in corporations today, especially in the C-suite, uh, 90% of whom say they played sports. Like boys, sport was where women are taught to be confident and capable and competent, how to compete, you know, how to be resilient. Somebody's got to lose it and got to step back, reassess, go back in and you know, win. That's that's where we train boys. And for the first time, that's where we also trained our daughters. Were it not for Title IX, what we see today wouldn't be happening. And I heard you mention that change takes 60 years, I think you had said, three generations, right. yep. to fully fully get accepted. So here, here we are at 50 years. We're still out there, right? Right. Are, are we still on the course? Um, are we behind? Are we... We've slowed down in the last 10, you know, 15 years considerably. We have made great advances in 
participation. Women are now 43 or 44% of all college athletes, but they're 56% of all college students. So we've got a chunk to go there. And where we've really slowed down is in treatment and benefits, that when it comes to promotion, when it comes to publicity, when it comes to the operating budget of a sport and how far they can travel and coaches' salaries and things like that, still slow, slow growth. And it's going to take probably another round of lawsuits that we're starting to see now, um, you know, following the Final Four debacle last year where Sedona Prince, you know, revealed the unequal treatment of women at the Final Four and precipitated the Kaplan report for the NCA and independent investigation, and now Congress getting involved and being concerned in terms of gender equity. There's going to be another round of, of lawsuits here and bad press, and hopefully that's going to jumpstart a little quicker recovery here. And for you personally, after building a program like Texas and seeing, you know, one of the greatest college pitchers of all time in softball, uh, collegiate pitchers, come out of that program and seeing a few hundred All-Americans all around, not to mention the professionals, the women professionals in, in management that came out of the program that you guided, architect of. What kind of goes through your mind when you think about that? Teachers and administrators do not at the moment they're involved in sport, appreciate the extent to which sport changes people or contributes to their success. You only see it 10, 20 years later when they're gone, right? <laughs> and you're gone too, right? So my greatest joy is meeting athletes at Texas who are now doing tremendous things in fields unrelated to sport because the biggest transition most important transition for these athletes is not the national championship, but it's taking everything they've learned in sport and using it to shape the rest of their lives. And to be able to see that is as rewarding, if not more rewarding, than you know, lighting the tower. Thank you so much. Um, is, is there anything else that you think is important um, to convey about women's athletics or or, or just anything, anything that... No, it's a fascinating story, and, you know, it's, it's like anything else. You, you realize you could have never predicted the way history was going to evolve, and it's fascinating when you look at it, right? Some of it's by accident. Some of it's by intent, like legislation. But ultimately, it's never totally rational, totally linear. It really depends on personalities. If Ted Kennedy and, and Birch Bay and Edith Green weren't around to do Title IX, uh, it never would have happened. If, if Darrell Royal hadn't made national headlines, the media would have never covered a topic like the importance of sport for girls. In, in my mind, the reason why Title IX stayed intact was because rather than the women objecting to you know, football, getting everything, or making it a war, they simply, all these physical educators who were then leaders of women's athletics, simply told the public what the research says. Girls who play sports are likely to matriculate in college. They're less likely to be sexually assaulted. 
They have higher levels of confidence, higher levels of self-esteem. And they persuaded parents that they wanted the same thing for their daughters as they had given their sons. And that was, that, that was what won the Title IX battle. If Daryl didn't say anything, right? If the media didn't cover it, if the media didn't give voice to those facts, I don't think the public support of Title IX would have evolved the way it did. Thank you for listening to the concluding episode of our Nine for Title IX series featuring Dr. Donna Lopiano. If you haven't done so already, please download and listen to the previous episodes of our Nine for Title IX series, showcasing interviews with women at the forefront of sports history in Texas. This episode of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast was presented by Tamplay Suites, Waco Northeast. We invite you to Waco to visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. And when you do, book your stay at the Tamplay Suites, Waco Northeast. <laughs>